call us to worship with Psalm 66, 8 through 9. Hear, hear what the Word of God says. It says, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard. Amen. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Let's worship Him this morning.
Good morning. Turn with me to Psalm 130. I have one uh, announcement about next week. Uh, they're having an event, an event here, so next week we're going to have to meet next door in the south, which is a much larger space, and so we hope to have one meeting with all of the church uh, next week over that, praise the Lord. And we also hope, we're, we're working on something uh, that will help us to actually have the Lord's Supper together uh, next week. Next Sunday, next door, 9 a.m., one service. Uh, anybody know any visitors, please pass that information along to them. We're going to send out an email and probably text and group me and, and things like that. So next week, one service, next door, 9 a.m. Afterwards, we're going to have a business meeting uh, and talk about some membership things and, and maybe uh, hopefully some building committee things as well. And so please make every effort to come next week so that we can meet as the whole church uh, for the first time in I don't know how many months. And so pray about that and please, uh, please be there. So I want to help us try to turn our hearts to the Lord and to the gospel. And I want to do that from Psalm 130. And I want to do that by first reminding you of your sin. So that I can remind you of God's forgiveness. So that we can fear the Lord we praise him together. And so I want to do that looking at two lines from a song we sing and two lines from this psalm that we read. The song that we sing is uh, says, uh, Our sins are many, his mercy is more. Like those two truths put together uh, just are an awesome summary of the gospel. Our sins are many. But his mercy is so much more. And I want us to turn our hearts to that truth of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So that we may worship uh, rightly this morning. And so, let's just read the first four verses of Psalm 130. And we're going to focus on those two truths in verse 3 and verse 4. And so, listen for these cries of mercy. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But... With you, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And so in these desperate cries for mercy, would you see that he follows it with two great twin truths. Our sins are many, and his mercy is more. Look at how he starts this plea in, in, in verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He is very aware. He's, he's considering his own guilt. And I want us to even consider that this morning. This is, this is not theoretical what he's saying. This is true. God does mark iniquity. It's not... 
It does not escape him at all. Psalm 90 says, We are brought to an end. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Why? Because you have set our iniquities before you. He, he says, Our secret sins are in the light of his presence. I want you to think about something. How many secret sins do you have? Think about that. How many secret sins do you and I have right now? None. Absolutely none. The God of heaven and God of earth sees every bit of it. And our sins are many. Our sins are many and they are exposed to him. Every one. How many of our iniquities are marked? More than we know. How great is our sin? Greater than we can imagine. Before a holy God. I mean, there's a thousand sins that we've forgotten about. There's a thousand sins that we think are hidden. There's a thousand sins that we've made peace with, that we've called okay. But God will judge everyone. This book ends with books being opened. It says in Revelation, the dead were judged by what is written in the books. Have you ever thought, man, what's written in those books about me? How many pages do I have in those books? How many books do I have? How many books do I have in those books? Lord, if you should mark my iniquities, man, who can stand? Who can stand? The Bible says we're all going to stand. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And who can stand there? Who can, who can stand? That, that's exactly what our death is. A summons, like a subpoena. A summons to come before God and stand and give an account. It's appointed once for man to die and then, guess what? You're summoned to stand before God. And who can stand? I mean, who, which one of us can give me an answer for even one of our sins against God? How terrifying would it be if the Bible stopped at verse 3? But it doesn't. But it doesn't. This word, but, man, it's all through the Bible. I think it's even in the text that Dustin's going to preach this morning. This, this great, there's two sides here, this heavy weight of sin, but forgiveness with the Lord. This, this is exactly why we're here today, is to worship this great reversal of our ruin. A great reversal of our ruin. This is what the gospel is all about. It doesn't stop with this great justice of God that shows us exactly what we deserve, but there's forgiveness with the Lord. This is why we're here to worship. A just and merciful God, yes, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. He says right here, 
Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is forgiveness. And you either have this forgiveness right now or it's sitting here available for you right now. There is forgiveness with the Lord. This is exactly what this text says. There is forgiveness with the Lord. And if you feel the weight of your sin, this is sweet news. Mercy for undone sinners. And it's not that God ignores the marks of iniquity, but it's that he bore the marks of iniquity. Our marks in his body on that tree 2,000 years ago, before you were even born, and the only mark, if you are trusting in that truth of the gospel of Christ crucified and raised from the dead, the only mark in the books of heavens that need concern you is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Man. Man, we, we should rejoice in that. Those pages of mine are ripped out or wiped clean or whatever metaphor you want to use, but there's one mark, praise God written in blood in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because there's forgiveness with the Lord. There's forgiveness with the Lord. Where, how much forgiveness? More than your sin. Like this is, this is what this text even says. How much forgiveness? Verse 7. Plentiful. Plentiful redemption. Forgiveness for how much iniquity? It says, verse 8, all of your iniquity. Like David says when he cries out under the weight of his own sin, abundant mercy. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is much more. There's forgiveness with him. Forgiveness with him. Where is the forgiveness? It's with him. It's with the Lord. Not apart from the Lord at all. No way. It's with him. You cannot stand before the Lord. You have to stand with the Lord. And this is what this text says in verse 4. With Him there is forgiveness. Verse 7. With Him there is steadfast love. Verse 7. With Him there is plentiful redemption. There is no refuge from Him. There is only refuge with Him. We heard this preached from Psalm 2. Kiss the Son. Blessed are those who have refuge in Him. We find refuge in Him. And so this is what the call today is. Is to fear the Lord. Kiss the Son. And take refuge and find forgiveness with Him. And let's worship Him. This is how verse 4 ends. It says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Why is that there? In the forgiveness part? And not in the judgment part? It's because the fear, the right fear of God's wrath and His judgment gets reshaped by the magnitude of His mercy. We heard about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The magnitude of His mercy and the abundance of His forgiveness reshapes that fear. We no longer tremble at judgment day. We tremble at the sacrifice that bought our forgiveness. 
We tremble at the cost of this forgiveness. Man, this, this, this mile high pile of sin of mine is what caused the slaughter of God's Son. How can I sin against one who has forgiven me so much? How would I dare presume on such mercy? How would I dare presume on such grace? We should worship at his feet because of what he's done to bring about this great mercy. We should worship at his feet. Kiss the sun, it says. Do you know there's one New Testament passage where we see someone actually kissing, literally kissing the feet of Jesus? You know who it was? Someone who was forgiven much. The sinful woman who is described as the the woman of the city, the sinner. What does she do as soon as she comes in? She never ceases kissing his feet. And Jesus explains why. She's been forgiven much. The one who is forgiven little loves little. But the one who is forgiven much loves much. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I pray that we would love him more for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what great news you've given us. Not just in the Gospels of the New Testament, but here in these Psalms from thousands of years earlier, that with you there's forgiveness because you are a forgiving God full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. God, we praise you for your incredible mercy. We found favor in your sight. Somehow, Lord, we have found favor in in your sight and even while we were sinners, you sent your son to die for us. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a sense of our sin, that we may have a a right sense of his sacrifice. God, I pray that you would give us, all, all in this church, a right fear of you and a great love for Jesus Christ. I pray that you would show us more and more of Christ. Lord, I pray you would pour out your spirit richly upon us. Make us a holy people who fear you and turn from evil and tremble at your word, a people zealous for your name, zealous for your gospel. Make us zealous for good works, zealous for anything and everything for your kingdom. We are in a dark world. Pray that we would be light, an ever-increasing light. Lord, I pray that you would protect us God, protect us in every way. Protect this church in every way that you would. Protect us from this virus, from false world that just piles up all around us. Protect us from disunity, worldliness, and apathy. Lord, instead, I pray that through your forgiveness, 
through an, through an appreciation of your forgiveness that you would set us on fire. You would set us on fire and let us be instruments for your gospel, Lord. Help us to reach our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, this city, Puno, Huliaka, Erbil, Kunming. Lord, help us to steward this great privilege you've given us, this great treasure you've given us in these jars of clay. Lord, show that the power belongs to you and the privilege belongs to us, Lord. Please, work among us. Work through us. Work in us. Work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would work today here. That we would have power from on high here today, Lord, that you would do great and eternal things in this meeting this morning. That you would be pleased, Lord, to save here today. That you would be pleased to elevate your son Jesus in our hearts even more today. Build us up in faith today. May all glory and honor and thanks be to you. Our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and in light of that great truth, we're going to sing, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Let's confess this to the Lord. guilty soul and what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole not what I feel or do can give me peace with God not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load these guilty hands are raised filthy rags are all I bring, and I have come to hide beneath your wings. These holy hands are raised, washed in the fountain of your grace, and now I wear your righteousness. Thy work alone, O Christ, and ease this weight of sin. But alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, my mind, O Lord, to Thee. And rid me of this dark unrest, and set my spirit free. These guilty hands are raised, filthy rags are all I bring. And I have come to hide beneath your wings. These holy hands are raised, washed in the fountain of your grace. And now I wear your righteousness. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. 
power alone, O Lamb of God, in this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. I praise, I praise the God of grace. I trust His truth and mine. He calls me His, I call Him mine. My God, my joy, my life. Tis He who saved me and freely pardoned gives. I love because He first loved me. I live because He lives. These guilty hands are raised. Filthy rags are all I bring, and I have come to hide beneath your wings. These holy hands are raised, washed in the fountain of your grace, and now I wear your righteousness. Now I wear, and now I wear your righteousness. song is a new song for us. Psalm 42 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And this is a song that is, is, is revolving around that theme that even in sorrow we can call to God and we can uh, say to our souls, hope in God. So let's sing this together. sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken torn and ruined from the fall hear my desperation for so long I've pled and prayed God come to my rescue even so the thorn remains Till my heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith, these billows roll. God, be now my shelter. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in Him who saves you When the fires have all grown cold Calls this heart to praise you Oh my soul, put your hope in God My help, my rock, I will praise Him
Should my life be torn from me? Every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. Be my vision in the night, be my hope and refuge, till my faith is turned to sight, Lord, my heart will praise you. Oh, my soul, oh, my soul, put your hope in God, my help. Oh God, 
As we continue worshiping the Lord this morning, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. And we're going to go to the Lord again in prayer this morning. And we're going to ask God for His blessing on the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You now, God, and we want to bring Your words that You revealed to us back to You, Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, we bring that promise that You gave to Your disciples that You would send the Holy Spirit and that He would testify of You. That He would exalt You, Lord Jesus. You tell us in Your Word that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. Lord, we ask this day that Christ Jesus would be exalted, that You would permit, allow, and reveal to us a glimpse of the glory of the Son of God. And Lord, we bring this request to You this morning in the name of Jesus. Not because of our own righteousness, Lord, do You hear us in prayer. Every answer to prayer that we've ever received has been bought for us by the blood of Jesus. You don't hear us, Lord, because of our eloquence, our zeal. You hear us because of Your Son. And so we ask in His name this morning that our hearts would be strengthened, that our souls would be encouraged, And Lord, we ask that sinners would be confronted and comforted with the saving message of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Titus chapter 3. This morning, we have a great privilege this morning of this text that is all about the gospel. This is a salvation text. And we know that the whole Bible is about Jesus, but there are certain places in the Bible that especially focus in on the gospel 
of the grace of God. And this is one of those texts in Titus 3, a salvation text. Now, this is a great privilege for us this morning to be able to dig into a gospel text, a text that is especially focused on revealing the good news of Jesus Christ. And I say it's a privilege for this reason. I'll remind you, 1 Corinthians 15.3 calls the gospel the matter of first importance. And so if you ever wondered, what is the most important thing in the universe? The Bible actually answers that question. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is quite literally the most important message, the most beautiful message. It's the highest thing that could roll across our minds. The most beautiful thing that could land upon our hearts. It's a message that everybody needs to hear. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Not only today, but every day. Lost people need to hear the gospel. And this is obvious, right? Why? Because Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Lost people need to hear the gospel so that lost people can be saved, so that they can see Christ, see this grace that's been revealed in Jesus Christ, put their trust and their hope in Christ and be saved. Lost people need to hear the gospel. False converts need to hear the gospel. Anyone outside of grace needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only the lost... Believers also need to hear the gospel. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 1. There's this interesting phrase right after he calls the believers in Rome saints, holy ones. He tells them that he's eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome. The Apostle Paul is eager. It's like he's salivating at the mouth to preach Jesus To people who are already converted. Believers need the gospel too. In fact, Romans begins and ends with this theme of the gospel for the believer. Romans chapter 1. And also the close of Romans. Romans 16 verse 25. Paul tells those same group of Christians. Romans 16 25. That God is able to strengthen you. And I want you to think about that this morning. As a believer, do you believe that God is able to strengthen you today? That God is able to mature you, to grow you, to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ? And believers all across the room say, yes, I believe that He is able. Paul goes on to say this in Romans 16, 25. That God is able to strengthen these saints according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is how we get strong as believers as the gospel is announced to the church. Not only for the lost, the gospel is for believers. And so the gospel is powerful both to save and to sanctify, to save and to strengthen. And so everybody needs to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And God calls us to understand His gospel. 
It's not supposed to be this fuzzy message in our minds. We're supposed to be established in the gospel of Jesus. The scriptures call us to a deep, affectionate, and a doctrinal understanding of the gospel. We're supposed to know what the gospel is according to the scriptures. It's not just what we've always thought it should be. It's what God has revealed it to be in His Word. And not only that, He's called us to the appropriate, the fitting affections as we understand the saving message of Jesus Christ. And so I say all that to say this. Let's lean in this morning and give careful attention to the matter of first importance. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read God's word together. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. As we mentioned, this is a salvation text. This text is all about salvation. And if you're taking notes this morning... You can just jot down this structure. I think this will help you follow along. The theme of our text is the gospel of salvation. That's what this passage is about. In verse 3, Paul lays out the need for salvation. And that's point number one this morning. In verses 4 through 7, the apostle Paul lays out the appearance of salvation, the work of of salvation. And that's point number two. And then finally in verse eight, Paul lays out the fruit of salvation, the response to salvation. And that's point number three. If you jot those down really quickly, I think that'll help you follow along as we move through this text. The need of salvation, the appearance of salvation, and the fruit of salvation. One of the striking features, not only of this text, but of other places in God's Word, I'm thinking specifically of Ephesians 2, off the top of my head, 
in a passage that reveals the gospel, which the word gospel means good news, there's a striking feature in this text that the good news begins, in verse 3, with bad news. And this is the Apostle Paul's first move in our text this morning. He is about to magnify the grace of God, but the very first step the Scriptures make is to magnify human depravity, to magnify the depth of human sin. This is, this is an intentional move by Holy Scripture, that this is the appropriate background for us to see the radiance of the glory of the grace of God as the depths of our depravity. And so in verse 3, Paul sketches out this portrait. This portrait in verse 3 is of Christians prior to their conversion. He says this, For we ourselves were once, and then he's about to fill in the blank, with a lot of sins. He's reminding these Christians of who they once were, apart from Christ, apart from grace, and before conversion. And to say the very least, this is not a favorable picture at all. Verse 3 is not where you go in the Bible if you want to feel good about yourself. In fact, you know, you know, Bible verses are oftentimes slammed on a coffee cup or a bumper sticker. Not verses like this, though. Right? This is not where you go if you want that dose of self-confidence. As we were once foolish and disobedient. And yet the Scriptures reveal this to us. This is who we once were. Apart from conversion... To Jesus Christ. And I hope this morning that as we walk through verse 3, that you remember that this is a picture of all of us. That this is, no one is excluded. This is who we all once were, apart from grace and apart from Jesus. And I hope this morning that you don't have any trouble at all identifying yourself in this crowd, this portrait that is painted. In verse 3, and I say that to warn you to be careful not to think about yourself more highly than you ought to think about yourself. God's Word is true. Our feelings are oftentimes liars. And so if God's Word tells us this is who we are, even if everything in us says, you know what, I really don't feel like I was like that, God's Word is true. We have to allow God's Word to tell us who we are. And here, the Bible tells us that we were not neutral people doing the best we could navigating life. You hear this many times. I've heard it in my own family so many times. I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing the best I can with what I've been given. The Bible actually pronounces us In verse 3, as disobedient fools. This is who we once were apart from grace and apart from conversion to Jesus Christ. We were disobedient fools. The end of verse 3 tells us that we were hated by others. We were hating one another. The middle of that verse tells us that we were enslaved to our own sinful passions 
This is a sketch of human depravity. The Bible is reminding us this morning that we weren't morally neutral. We weren't blank slates. We were sinners and rebels against God. And in fact, verse 3 sketches out this picture of a life that assaults the authority of God. That's, That's who we were. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We lived a life that assaulted the authority of God. God said hundreds of times in His Word, Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And we said no. And we rebelled against our God, our Creator. We were disobedient fools. Sin, this is one of the things we have to learn if we're going to appreciate the gospel of the grace of God is that sin is not this little bitty thing. It's not this little bitty thing. If, all, if, if sin is just, if your sin is just this little bitty thing, then all you need is a little bitty Jesus. A little bitty bitty Christ. But sin, according to Scripture, is rebellion against the God of glory. And so, brothers and sisters, and all of us in the room, every one of us has committed high treason against the high king of heaven. We deserve to be punished for the things that we have done. We have attempted to dethrone the high king of heaven and earth. And if we could, we would have stripped him of his godness, of his authority over us. I want to share a quote with you from a Puritan named Ralph Venning. And this comes from the Puritan paperback series published by Banner of Truth, which I highly commend to you. This book is called The Sinfulness of Sin. And I want to share this with you, that we would grow in our understanding that sin is not this little bitty thing. Sin is exceedingly sinful. It is altogether sinful. Evil. He says about the sinfulness of our sin, and I hope you see yourself here. We have all provoked the Lord to jealousy. We have placed a dare upon the justice of God. We rate the mercy of God. We slighted the power of God. We spurned the love of God. We scoffed at His promises and we reproached His wisdom. God established His authority in our life as our Creator King and all of us were disobedient fools who rebelled against God. And anyone here today outside of Jesus Christ that has not been converted and saved to Jesus Christ, the Bible says this is still you. And I don't mean this to to dehumanize you in any way. You were created in the image of God. God made you for glory. God made you to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ, to give Him worship, adoration, and praise. 
But the Bible says if you're not saved, you are a disobedient fool. Even if you have a PhD in the room this morning, you have rebelled against your Creator and your King. And for that reason, we are pronounced as disobedient fools by the Word of God. We have failed to love God and neighbor. And that means that all of us, without exception, have broken the two greatest commandments in God's law. And I just want to say the obvious about verse 3. People like this do not go to heaven. People like this, in verse 3, do not go to heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to be reminded this morning of our depravity, our nature outside of grace, outside of Jesus Christ. We are moral wretches. We really are that bad. Verse 3 places us in a moral landfill in the garbage dump of our own sin, drowning in the sewage of our sin. Disobedient fools. And the Bible is careful to do this before we have this glorious pivot to the grace of God. You need to understand our condition outside of Jesus Christ. And so we have this glorious but in verse 4. And Greg mentioned this earlier. The Bible does this many different times. That this is true. This is who we are. We have no hope. We're helpless. We're headed to eternal wrath and judgment for our sins. And then the gospel trumpet, the gospel blast is, but God did something. And verse 4 tells us that while we were drowning in our sin, God acted. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. And that dark backdrop of our depravity, this brilliant light of grace has begun to shine. God, our Savior, has appeared. His goodness, His loving kindness has been made manifest. He didn't leave us where we were, drowning in our sin. He came to save us. Now I want you to think about how beautiful that is. Because you know, as you locate yourself in verse 3, that the only thing that you deserved was a judge to come on the scene to condemn you. And what the Gospel tells you is that a Savior came on the scene to rescue you. God, our Savior, has appeared. His goodness and His loving kindness has appeared. Now, that mercy and that loving kindness, that goodness, that's been in the heart of God the Father from all eternity. But it was manifested historically at a point in time. And that's when Jesus came into the world. When Jesus was incarnated, when Jesus came into the world, that mercy, that grace, that love that was in the heart of God from all eternity was manifested. It appeared when God, our Savior, appeared. And then we come to the blazing center of this passage, the beating heart 
of this passage is found in the main verb of verse 5. And these three beautiful words. He saved us. He saved us. I want you to let that sink in this morning. That this is who we were. We were once disobedient fools. But the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. And when He came, He did not come empty handed. The Bible says that when He came, He saved us. He saved us. Jesus came as a deliverer. Not as a life coach. To be your mentor. Be reminded of that. You didn't need self-help. You needed salvation. What good would self-help have been to you? The Bible says we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were in a coffin spiritually. The most holy man who ever existed could have stepped into human history and said, love God, love your neighbor. And we're dead in the, we're dead in the tomb. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. Self-help would have been no help at all. No, Jesus came to save us. Not to be just merely our example or our mentor or our life coach. He saved us. We have this picture in the Gospels of Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus. And we have this dead man that's been de dead for many days. And at the voice of the Son of God, we have this dead man Lazarus raised to life as Jesus pronounces these words, Lazarus, come forth. And the gospel is a reminder that when Jesus came, he came like that. The Savior appeared and he saved us. He raised us. From that hopeless condition. We were drowning in our sin. He delivered us. He didn't tell us to save ourselves. He did the job. He provided the work of salvation. He saved us. And I want you to notice this morning. That that language is this completed once for all act. In other words verse 5 doesn't say. He began to save us. Though in a sense, that's true. We're still being saved from our sins. But look at where the language of verse 5. It's definitive. The Christian has been saved by Jesus Christ. By God our Savior. It's a finished work. It's an eternal work. It's a once for all work. He saved us. And we're reminded of the words of Jesus as He gave His life for us on the cross. Jesus did not say, it has begun. Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. There's way too many false churches in the world with professing Christians walking around not knowing if they're saved. I don't know if I can be saved. Oh, it's so prideful to presume that we would be saved. The Bible is clear that believers can have an assurance. Not that we might be saved one day if God's really gracious. But the Bible says this. He saved us. 
We are saved by Jesus Christ. God our Savior has appeared and He saved us. It's a definitive, finished work that Christ has performed for Christians. And I want us to be humbled this morning as we put verses 3 and verse 5 together that we remember that God didn't save us because of anything He saw in us. Verse 5 says, It was not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And you know how easy it is if you've been a believer for any length of time for those self-righteous thoughts to creep into our hearts and for us to fathom even just for a moment that there's something praiseworthy in us. That there's something worthy in us. That there's something in us that makes us better or categorically different than any other sinner on planet earth. And the Bible says, no, no. That undermines grace. It's not according to works done by us in righteousness. Listen, this salvation is by mercy and grace alone. And this means this morning, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because God saved you. Period. End of sentence. No qualifications. You are a Christian because He saved you. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He says, it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of Him. It's not because of us. It's not because we made this great decision and we get a pat on the back by all the angels of heaven. No, no. It's grace. It's mercy. It's because of Him that we are Christians. We are foolish and disobedient ones that have received mercy from the God of heaven. In verse 3, we were in total ruin. And in verse 5, God alone has provided the remedy. He acted. He appeared. And He saved us. And we are debtors to His mercy throughout all of eternity. We will praise the glory of the grace of God through endless ages. That we did nothing to deserve it. And Jesus is the Savior. We are debtors to mercy and grace. I want you to notice that this passage begins to sketch out. It puts some meat on the bones, so to speak, of the gospel. Of the gospel of salvation. And there's some vocabulary here that we need to become established in as followers of Jesus. He saves us comprehensively. And in describing this comprehensive salvation, Paul describes two acts of God in verses 5 through 7. Those two acts are regeneration and justification. Regeneration and justification. I want you to think deeply about these two things for a moment. These works are concurrent. That means they happen simultaneously at the very beginning of the Christian life. They're concurrent, and yet they're distinct works of God. 
concurrent yet distinct works of God. And when we take these together, justification and regeneration, this becomes the double cure for human sin. And I get that phrase from the the hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, be for sin the double cure. Listen, save from wrath and make me pure. The double cure for human sin. Justification and regeneration is God's answer for our guilt and our corruption as depraved sinners. And so I want us to look at these individually and then together. Verse 5, God saved us in this way. In this way. This is how God did it. This is how God saved you who are drowning in your sin. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how God saved you. And this is important. Because when we become Christians... We're saved on very little knowledge, in-depth knowledge of the gospel. And it's beautiful. Just like a child learning to read, the knowledge that they have is true and beautiful. And the beginning of the Christian life is often the simplicity of, man, I know I'm saved. I know that Jesus died for my sin. But as we read and study God's word, we begin to find out the breadth and the depth of what happened to us. When the grace of God saved us. The grace of God and regeneration. Paul says that it washed us clean from our depraved nature. The washing of regeneration. And the word renewal reminds us that this grace was powerful to impart life where there was death. Believers are made completely new. God saved you in this way. He washed you clean of your corruption and He imparted life where there was only death and deadness. And because of grace, those who were dead in their sins, the Bible says they are now alive in Jesus Christ. And John 3 Jesus refers to this regeneration and renewal as being born again. And that's how radical of a change is in view here. Another birth. A completely new start. And I want you to just think for a moment this morning of the birth of a little baby, boy or girl. And there's a moment in time, Lord willing, when that little baby, boy or girl, takes their first breath, that gasp, and air and oxygen fills those lungs for the first time and they let out a cry. It's a beautiful work of God. Beautiful work of God. And in the same way, there was a moment of time for every Christian where eternal life, and by that I mean the life of God Himself, began to pulse through your dead spirit. You were made alive in Christ. You were raised from the dead. You were resurrected in Jesus Christ. And the old you was gone forever. 
And the Bible says the new creation came. The new man. The new you. You were recreated in Christ Jesus. And that's how God saved you. That's how God saved you from this corrupt condition that you were in. Is He regenerated you. He renewed you by the Holy Spirit. And not only this, verse 7 tells us that God saved us by justifying grace. Having been justified by grace, verse 7 says. In regeneration, the Christian receives life from the Spirit of God. But in justification, the Christian receives righteousness from the Son of God. One imparts life. The other imparts righteousness through justifying grace. Brothers and sisters, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is freely given to all who believe. I want you to think about how perfect the righteousness of Jesus is. It can never be improved. Not, not, not a millimeter, not in any way can the righteousness of Jesus be improved. And yet that robe, that righteous record, that perfect obedience of the Son of God is the righteousness that is given to us through justifying grace. The greatest of exchanges takes place in the gospel. Your sin. That sin, even that was mentioned in verse 3, your foolish disobedience that deserves wrath from God was placed upon God's only Son, the greatest of exchanges. And His perfect, righteous record was given to you. And on the basis of that exchange, our sins placed upon Christ his righteousness given to us. Justification refers to this verdict, this legal rendering, this legal word that proceeded from God the judge. The judge of all the earth made a legal verdict. He rendered a judgment about us in Christ Jesus. And he said, justified, righteous in Jesus. We were pronounced righteous, perfectly righteous, in the holy sight of God the Father. Our sinful record has been forever removed by Christ our Savior. Listen, this is once for all. You don't get justified three, four, five times in your life. One time. That judge rocks back, steps forward from the bench, and when he says righteous, you are righteous through endless ages. In fact, because the righteousness that we have received is the righteousness of Jesus Himself a thousand years into eternity, our standing with God, our legal position before God the judge, won't be any different than our legal position right now. We are righteous in Christ. We are righteous forever in the Son of God. 
This double grace of justification and regeneration. This always goes together. He saved us through the washing of regeneration. He saved us by His justifying grace. Being justified by His grace. When God saves, He does both. Every time. He he imparts life and righteousness. In the language of Romans 5.18, He gives us justification and life when He gives us Jesus Christ. And this double grace, this is exactly what we needed. Our problem ran deeper than our sinful record. We had a sinful heart. We had a sinful nature. We need our record dealt with, but we needed our corruption scrubbed away. And this double grace is the fitting answer, the only answer to our problem. God has saved us from both our debt and our deadness. He saved us from our condemnation and our corruption. This is holistic salvation from sin. And so when we read those words in Matthew 1, 21, Call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. See that as a really big thing. He saves us from our sins in every way. Saves us from our sin in every way. This is a free gift of grace. And our response this morning to the grace of God, it ought to be hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This text tells us that every Christian who has their trust in Jesus Christ right now, You have spiritual life pulsing through your souls. You have the perfect record of Jesus Christ credited to your account. And listen, the only reason why that's true is because God our Savior has appeared. And He saved us. He saved us. Listen, this is equally true for every Christian. Every single Christian has received regeneration And justification. And these things do not come by degrees. I mean we we have distinctions that we make in the body of Christ. Like new believers and older believers are less mature and more mature believers. But listen close. Listen close. The most new, immature, hardly knows anything about the scriptures believer this morning. No one in the entire church of Jesus Christ is more regenerated than you. No one in the entire church of Jesus Christ is more righteous before the judgment seat of God than you. Why? Because God has He's given us these gifts. He's poured out, verse 6, He poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are alive in Christ. We are justified In Christ Jesus. There's an equal standing here. An equal measure that we have received. He's poured it out. This is the gospel of the grace of God. He saved us. What comes next? Well, beginning in verse 8. There's maybe one of the most obvious statements in the entire Bible. And so beginning in verse 8, we have this glorious gospel of the appearance of the Son of God, the saving work 
of the Son of God, the triune God, in salvation. And Paul says at the beginning of verse 8, oh, by the way, this is a faithful saying. This is a faithful saying. And if there's anything that I hope you can agree with this morning, it's yes, Lord. That right there is a faithful saying. That revelation of mercy. That revelation of the grace of God, the gospel. And then Paul gives Titus this commandment. And it's a little less obvious in the middle of verse 8. And he says this. I want you to insist upon these things. Now, I take that to be a reference to everything that Paul just said in verses 4 through 7. It's a faithful saying, therefore, I want you to insist upon these things. Insist upon these things. So we have a commandment in verse 8 that's given from Paul to Timothy. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be insisted upon in the church. It's to be the emphasis. It's to be the center. It's to be the reoccurring note that you always hear coming back to. Insist upon these things. The appearance of the Son of God. The finished work of salvation. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The justification of By the grace of God. Don't ever let it stop coming out of your mouth. Insist upon these things. The faithful saying. And with this commandment we see that the Apostle Paul. He never wants Christians to move past the gospel. He never wants us to move past the gospel. Like like this. Oh yeah I got that. I got that down. Now show me the real stuff of what it, what it means to grow in Christ. To mature in Christ. Paul says, no, no. Mature Christians never stop insisting upon the gospel. Tim Keller says this about the supremacy of the gospel. He says, because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of of being the one main thing in the church. What's to be the thing above every other thing in the church of Jesus? And there are lots of good things that well-meaning Christians can exalt to the primary thing. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no. The one thing that you are to insist upon is this faithful message This revelation of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to exhort you. I want to remind you this morning that God calls us to do more than know the gospel. Which, let's start there. We should know the gospel. We should love the gospel. We should believe the gospel. We should preach the gospel. And I want to encourage you and remind you this morning that God's Word tells you to insist upon these things. Whatever you're going to make, your constant emphasis as a Christian, 
You know, your points that you like to come back to over and over. Make sure it's this. Okay? Make sure it's this. That God, our Savior, has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to warn you to do some work in your heart. Make sure that what God calls the matter of first importance, the most important thing, has not begun to be treated like background music or elevator music in your life. It is to be insisted upon. The saving message of Jesus Christ. Paul finishes verse 8 by showing us that this gospel-centeredness, the lifting up the message of Jesus Christ, is not an empty thing. This is not this powerless, empty thing. He says, so that, do this so that, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Verse 8 started with the obvious. Verse 8 ends with something that's not so obvious at all. Many of you have heard this common cliche in your life. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Shake your head really quick if you've heard that before. Okay, Isn't it interesting that the Bible says the exact opposite of that phrase? Verse 8 tells us that those who are most heavenly minded, the most heavenly minded saints, are going to be the ones the most devoted to good works done in Jesus' name. And the less obvious piece of verse 8 is that if you were to poll us and you were to say, hey, what's the best way to get people really fired up about serving the Lord and doing good works? Most of us would say, well, bang the drum and tell them to do good works. And listen, Paul is not against calling directly for obedience to God or calling directly for good works. In fact, he's already done it in chapter 3, verse 1. Be ready for every good work. There's nothing wrong with calling for obedience to God. But there's a dynamic here that we need to be aware of. That that zeal for good works that produces, the, the thing that produces mature and zealous Christians is that insisting upon the gospel of the grace of God. This is Titus's charge. Bang that drum. Preach that gospel. Lift up the name, the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, so that those believers that you're around, they'll be devoted Zealously devoted to good works. Now, we've already said this doesn't mean that Titus is not to call for obedience, but it does mean this. That calls for obedience, calls for service are always given in the atmosphere, the culture, and the environment of insisting upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way that we've said that, a Grace Community Church for a long time is that the imperatives of Scripture are given in the context of the indicatives of the Gospel. 
The things that God has called you to do are always preceded by this knowledge of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And there's empowerment in getting those dynamics right. It's not this empty thing. It's this powerful thing lifting up, insisting upon the gospel. And so in verse 8, Paul has this thesis that the gospel emphasized produces devotion to good works. And because that truth is so counterintuitive to us, and I say counterintuitive because most of us think about if you really want to get some activity out of some Christians, go bootstrap religion. Do this, don't do this, serve in this way, call in this way. Paul is going at this a different way. And so I want to lay out several propositions to help us understand how this works, how this gospel emphasis is not this empty thing. And I want you to jot these down, take these home so that you can think more deeply about this truth, that the gospel emphasized produces devotion to good works. Proposition number one, insisting on the gospel leads to good works because... Good works are the aim of the atonement, which is the blazing center of the gospel that we insist upon. Say that quickly again. Insisting on the gospel leads to good works because good works are the aim of the atonement, which is the blazing center of the gospel. And stack a verse on top of that. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. As we lift up The saving message of Jesus Christ. Look at the things that we're going to bump into. Titus 2.14 Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who were zealous for good works. Do you know that good works are something that we're supposed to do As Christians, and by good works, I mean broad. Holy works, acts of service, broad. We're supposed to do that as followers of Christ. But do you know that it goes deeper than we're supposed to do it? Jesus died for it. Jesus died to secure a bride, a people who are zealous for good works. Proposition number two. Insisting on the gospel leads to good works because insisting on the gospel leads to beholding Christ. And beholding Christ is to become like Christ. Insisting on the gospel leads to beholding Christ. And beholding Christ is to become like Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So, gospel-centeredness is more than a good idea. Lifting up the saving message of Jesus Christ, more than a good idea. Paul says it's filled with power. Because as we give attention to Jesus Christ, we're transformed. Into His image. And guess what? Nobody has ever been devoted to good works like Jesus. 
So gospel emphasis conforms us into the image of the one, Mark 10, 45, who didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Insisting upon the gospel is not an empty thing. It's filled with the power of the Spirit of God. Proposition number three. Insisting upon the gospel leads to good works because gospel-centeredness leads to love for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. So I want you to think about how these dynamics work in your heart as you lift up this gospel, as you give attention to this gospel, constant emphasis to this gospel. You're going to conclude he's died for all. And the follow up to that conclusion The Bible says the love of Christ is going to control you, compel you. It's going to rule in your inner man. The very next verse says this, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him. Gospel-centeredness sets us free from the love of self and replaces it with love for Jesus. It sets us free to serve Jesus and to serve others. This is this response of gratitude to the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Luke 7, Greg mentioned this earlier, 747, the one who is forgiven much by Christ shows much love to Christ. Last proposition, insisting upon the gospel leads to good works because the gospel leads to the assurance of salvation, the assurance of salvation. When you're thinking about doing good works and you want those works to be acceptable to God and Jesus Christ, you need to be warned that nothing corrupts good works like making them the grounds of acceptance and favor With God. Only the Christian that knows the gospel, that knows that the only grounds of salvation and favor with God is Christ and Him alone, is set free from self righteousness and their good works, their good deeds. In the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, are works of faith, and their labor is a labor of love. They're not fruits of of self-righteousness, they're fruits of assurance that Jesus has saved me. I'll bring it to a conclusion here. Brothers and sisters, God, our Savior, has appeared. And we're being reminded today that He saved us. We're not who we once were. We have become new men and women in Jesus Christ. We have been justified by the grace of of God. And I hope you have been reminded that making this your constant emphasis as a Christian is exceedingly practical. It's exceedingly practical. 
Jot this down. Doctrinal Christianity is practical Christianity. It's not empty. It makes a difference in our lives. Paul's last words in verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So I hope you leave this morning fully convinced of the profitability of a gospel-centered life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we were helpless, you came for us. Lord, we ask for your help even now of all the right affections and responses that you would call us to from your word. Call us to worship. Call us to gratitude, Lord. Call us to salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.